Turn around and wave to your neighbors. Tell them you're glad to see them. Those of you joining us online, we're so glad that you're with us tonight on this nice, cool spring night. <laughs> we're glad that you're here. We're glad that everyone is here tonight. Uh, just remind you, those of you that um, either haven't been here watching or you've forgotten, uh, next Wednesday night we're going to have another one of our, our praise and worship nights. They've been yeah. wo- wonderful. And it's just, uh, I find that it, in, when we have just our normal praise and worship at the beginning of a service very often, especially on Sunday mornings because there's more people here and there's more of an atmosphere here. I find God speaks to me during those times with things to do in the future, things to say, maybe some things to change. And so uh, those are important times. We'll just, just come expecting, open your hearts to God. God's, God wants to, to open, he's opened his heart to us. He wants us to open our hearts to him. And I was listening to a, a great teacher this week, and he made this statement, among many others that were so good. He said, when, when we bring our surrendered hearts to his heart that's already reaching down, great and wonderful things happen. And that's what worship does. It's bringing our heart, surrendering it to him, opening it up to love him, and to allow the Spirit to engage that and make that connection with him. And that's what Jesus meant when he was talking to the woman at the well when he said, my, my, for my father is a spirit and those who he's longing for true worshipers for he is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth so next week you'll have an opportunity to do that praise the Lord alright let me find my notes here um, I'm going to do something a little different tonight this as far as I know is just a, a one time message um, once I find it here Praise the Lord. There we go. I was reading the other morning in the book of Galatians. And um, I love the book of Galatians. It's, it's so much in that book. But it's a letter that Paul wrote to a, to a church of new believers uh, who were Gentiles. That means they were not raised as Jews. They were not part of the Jewish covenant and part of the early revelation that God brought in the, we see in the book of Acts is when God did to the Jews what was unthinkable, he had Peter bring the gospel to Gentiles, to Cornelius, and then it just spread. And then Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and called him, ultimately called him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. These are people that were raised as pagans. They were worshipers of gods. They performed sacrifices to gods. They had, they had uh, uh, um, feasts and celebration to these gods, and they worshiped other gods, and, and, and they were idolatrous. They, were, they had no... It was kind of like the world today. There was no real moralities and no real standard. They just kind of did what they wanted to do, and now they've met Christ. And what began to happen in, in, in most of these cases, what began to happen is after Paul had, Paul's pattern was he would come in, he would begin to, he would first, very often first go to the synagogue, and, and he would bring, bring it to the Jews, and they would reject the gospel, and then Paul would take it somewhere uh, to, to begin to talk to whoever he could talk to, and then eventually there was like a Bible study would form, and then ultimately a church would form out of that, and Paul would often stay in those places for several years, and he would work, he had, in the beginning he had his own 
business. He was a tent maker. And he would support himself, and in the evening or whenever he could, he would begin to teach the gospel. And so gradually churches began to grow in these communities. And then Paul, as led by the Spirit, would move on to the next place that he was assigned to. And after he moved on, very often what would happen is, and this is often how the enemy works, he would come in because Paul had a strong sense of authority. But when that authority was removed, and then he, the, the lay leaders were taken over, very often there would be some, those that would come in and try to pervert the teaching of the gospel that Paul brought. In fact, Paul talks at one place about if somebody teaches you another gospel other than what I've taught, let them be accursed, because he was aware that they were going to come in. He warned, he warned the Ephesians that that was going to happen. Wolves were going to come in. He wasn't talking about four-legged animals. It was two-legged ones that were going to come in and try to pervert the teaching. And this is spirit that's behind that. So the letter of Galatians is written primarily to help the churches in Galatia to handle this by giving them understanding because what they were doing, one of the main groups that would come in were known as Judaizers. And what they were doing is they were, they were teaching that uh, we're saved by faith in Christ, but we also have to keep the law. And the law was not just the Ten Commandments, it was about 713 other rules, including how you washed your clothing, how you washed your cup, how you did almost everything from the time you opened your eyes until you went to bed. It governed all these little practices, and the concept was, if you do all these right, then you're living a holy life. And, and so Paul wrote this letter to the, to the churches at Galatia to try to help them understand what place the law had. Now, what difference does that make to us today? Is that just a historical, uh, historical um, uh, 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 understanding, or is there any application to us today? And this principle, this issue, still is alive today. We often are raised with some kind of background. Well, let's put it this way. There is a, there is a I wouldn't say conflict, that's too strong. There is a tension in the body of Christ among pastors and among, among t- churches uh, on, on a, this battle between the law and grace. So we've had a great upsurge over the last 10 years of teachers teaching on grace, and we've got ministries founded on grace, and we have some people on television, and they just teach amazing grace, and and I'm not talking against grace. But then you've got others that teach the law, and that we're saved not by the law, but we've got to have a fear of God, we've got to live our our lives right, and how do you balance these two out? And so it's one thing to learn how to balance them out in your theology and in your teaching and in your preaching and in your reading. But there's a, more, there's a more immediate impact on us because all of us have been raised to one degree or other with that battle from our childhood to our education to our own personalities. Because the tension is this. The, ba- the tension is this. The law basically was this, and this is what Paul is teaching them, why the law was given. Because Jesus said things like, I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill the law. So Jesus is saying, the law doesn't pass away. In fact, he said, you know, everything else is going to pass away, but not one jot or tittle, not one dot of the I or cross of the T is going to pass away until all of this is fulfilled. 
So Jesus says that, and then, but Paul's talking about this, and what he, he's teaching this principle, that the law was given through Moses to the children of Israel for a purpose. And in order to understand that, we've got to go back a little bit. and I mean, way back, so not a little bit. Back to the Garden of Eden. God created this man and then this man and woman together to live in a relationship with him. And it was wide open. There was no restrictions except one. They couldn't eat of the fruit of one tree. Everything else they wanted to do, they could do. And then sin comes in. And in the essence of the sin that came in was that Satan tempted them to take their lives into their own hands. In essence, to be their own God. And they would have a relationship with God, but they would reserve the right to decide whether they were going to do what God said or not. So they were establishing their will based on their understanding and their knowledge to evaluate what role God was going to have in their lives. And God called that rebellion. And the essence of it is this. In fact, it really is brought out in the 11th chapter of, of Genesis where, where the, the, these, the, these unbelievers now, and they've spread throughout the world, they just got together and decided they're going to build a tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. I don't want to get off on that because there are all kinds of directions we could go with this. And basically what they're saying is we're going to build this tower ourselves up into heaven. And what that represents is man's own effort to get himself into heaven by his own effort and by his own works. And that thread, it's stronger than a thread, that, that vein runs very strong through our fallen nature, our flesh. And you can see it in a two-year-old. I'm going to do it myself. We're just more sophisticated. And we cover it up with theology and other things like that. But there is inherent... In our, in our old nature, in our flesh, I've got to take some credit. I've got to prove something about myself, what I can do. Now, God's standard, God's standard for being in a relationship with him, God's standard for living eternally with him is he is an absolutely holy God. And the only beings that can live in his presence are beings that are just as holy as God is. And they were before Genesis 3. But the fall was not just they made a bad judgment and God kicked them out of the garden. The fall was a cataclysmic chasm that the rest of the Bible is all about providing a way back for the people that God loves so much. But the root of it is self. The root of all sin is self. Pride is based on self. Lust is based on self. Greed is based on self. It's promoting myself, providing for myself, protecting myself. And we can do that in very loving relationships. But somehow underneath it, it's still rooted in self. So the problem that God has, to the extent that God has problems, the, the, the challenge that God had was to get us to understand that. 
And the only way we can understand that is sometimes what you have to do with your children that think they're so smart. Okay, hotshot, let's see what you can do on your own. Go at it. And I'm going to do this, and I'm going. To, and then when they fall and scrape their knee, bang their head, make a mess, or when they're older, they go broke. When they're older, they got to move back into home. When they're older, they've taken their life in their hands. And I still know people that years later are still think they can control their own life and make their own destiny. And so what the law was was God was saying to them, if you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to be in a relationship with me a holy God, the only way you're going to do that is you've got to be as holy as I am. So here's the requirements. Here's what it means to be as holy as I am, and it started with ten of them, the Ten Commandments. So the purpose of the law that Paul is teaching was not to make anybody holy. It's not like, because if you haven't figured this out yet, then you're not quite what we're talking about tonight. You can't do that. I'll never forget. I was struggling with this gospel. I was to, we had good friends that were saved, and they were trying to help me along. I know they were praying for me. And they were just, you know, they would witness to us. They would show us things, give us books. And, and I, I was struggling so hard. And I was reading my Bible and, and at night, and I just, it was, I didn't, I, I, you know, I didn't understand it. I could understand the words, but it didn't do anything for me. Until one night, I'm reading through the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And I come to the statement where Jesus says this, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I was reading the things he was saying, and what we tend to do when we read those things is we translate them and water them down. Well, he can't really mean that. What he really means is this. Or somehow we, we, we dumb it down in our mind. We just, we, we're, our minds get calloused, so we, we don't ever let it, the full impact of it hit us, but that night it had hit me. It had gotten through to my heart by the Holy Spirit, and I came to these words of Jesus, because I'm leading, looking at what he required, looking at what it means to be, a, be, be in the, a citizen of heaven, what it means to be in a relationship with him, and I got to the statement, because I'm thinking, okay, all right, I understand that. He says, but be perfect as my heavenly father, your heavenly father is perfect. And suddenly it hit me what God required. And literally the words out of my mouth is, I can't do that. Now here, my problem was, I was a good person. There's some people out there, I'm not saying there's anyone here in the room tonight, but they may be watching online. You know you were a mess. You know you were a sinner. You know you couldn't do it. But I was a good person. I was a good husband. I was faithful. I was a good lawyer. It doesn't just mean I was good at what I did, but I was honest by, compared to people I worked with. And see, that's what we do. We compare ourselves with other people to judge whether we're good or bad. But Jesus is saying God doesn't compare you with one another. God compares you with himself. And when I saw that, the words out of my mouth, I, I can't do that. And the next words were, I need somebody to save me. And when those words came out of my mouth, suddenly I understood the gospel. Suddenly I knew why Jesus came. And Paul writes this letter to show the Galatians 
that this was the purpose of the law. The term he uses is the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. What does a tutor do? I had a tutor when I was in, in grade school. A tutor trains you and teaches you to get you somewhere, to prepare you maybe for a, an exam or to prepare you for better marks. And so the law was a tutor. It was to teach us something. And what it was to teach them is you can't do this yourself because inherent in our nature is I can somehow contribute something to this. So Paul is showing them what this difference is. And that's the background for what we're going to begin to read tonight. That's kind of a summary of what we're going to look at tonight. Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Paul is drawing the distinction between salvation by works under the law or salvation by faith in Christ. And what he's been teaching them is until you come to the end of yourself, you don't realize you need a Savior, and salvation is by putting your faith in what Christ did in your place instead of what you're doing to impress God or yourself or anyone, or anyone else. So, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So he's telling them, he's talking to them about what God has done for them in Christ. And he has made you. Notice he says you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We've been made sons and daughters, of course. That means nowadays you've got to be a little clearer on that. Okay. Um, in Christ... We have been put, we've been put in Christ when we were baptized. I think there's more to that. I don't know. Go back to verse 25. By faith, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Verse 26. Next verse. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me take a look, because I think I missed something here. Galatians actually use a paper Bible. <laughs> 25. Yeah, verse 27. You may not have it back there. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on... Christ. There you go. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul is telling them what God has done for them through their faith in Christ. And what he's saying to them is that you are sons and daughters of God. You have a relationship with him through your faith in Christ. And as many as you have were baptized into Christ has put on Christ. So we're going to talk tonight about what does it mean, because we're going to look at a number of scriptures where Paul talks about, or talks about putting on Christ, or having put on Christ. What in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, he says, you, you have put on Christ, and you did it when you were baptized into Christ. Now, he's referring here to the physical baptism, but the physical baptism is an outward exercise or rite you go through 
to, to display and confirm an inward baptism that you've done. The word baptize, you've heard me teach this before, is literally a Greek word, baptizo, and it means to be immersed in something. It comes from a, a term that was used when they dyed cloth. And they would take white cloth and they decided they wanted to make whatever other colored cloth out of it. And they would take it into a vat of, let's say, blue dye, and they would lower that white cloth down into the blue dye. And as they did it, the fibers of the, of the, of the, of the white linen began to absorb the dye, the blue dye, so that when you brought it back up again, that linen cloth was now one with that blue dye. And what was in the dye is now what's shown to the outside world. And this is what the word baptized literally comes from. So although it's often used to refer to being immersed in water, the immersion in water is an outward sign of your being immersed into Christ and Christ being immersed into you, being joined together. The the Bible uses other images. Christ uses the vine and the branch. Christ's prayer is that his Father and the Son were one, so we may be one with them. And that is literally a union, spiritual union, one. And and that means just as much as you are in Christ, Christ is in you. So when he says this, he says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, you've put Christ on. Of course you have, because you were joined to him. That means whatever he is, you are now because you're joined to him. And also means who he is now includes you because he's joined to you. And, and this, you've got to meditate on this because this will break your mind wide open. This will expand your mind because we're not used to thinking in these terms because we think in terms of individuals. But Paul's point here is that as many of you were baptized into Christ, you already have put Christ on. You put Christ on. It's an accomplished fact. It's what God has done when you put your faith in Christ. Now let's look at another example. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to look at something here. Excuse me a minute. I changed my notes, and I think those are the wrong notes. I think you've got the right notes back there, but... paper version. There's a radical idea. There we go. Okay. Ephesians 4, verse 20. Same thing. But you've not so learned Christ. He's just talked about what we used to be, what we used to do. But you've not so learned... He's just talked about the Gentiles and how they live in their flesh, dominated by their flesh. But you've not... Listen, look at this. You've not so learned... Christ, what he's like. 
Next verse. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Christ. Next verse. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. That's your old man. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. And you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's referring to renewing your mind. We'll talk about that again in a few minutes. That be, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Stay there. So he's saying that, that, that when you came to Christ, in fact, 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, if any man be in Christ, be in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. I've taught you before, that word new creation in the original language literally means a new species of being, a being that has never existed before. Why? Because your old man's gone, there's a new creation created in you, and that is a child of God. John chapter 1 says that he gave us the right to become children of God, born, not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born, and the Greek means out of God. So your new man, your new creation that you are in the inside is literally a child of God. You are born out of him. You have his seed in you. You have his spirit in you. And you are one with him because you are his child literally. It's not some symbolism. But your old man is still hanging around. And although there's a new person living on the inside of you, and that person is one with Christ, that old man is still hanging around. So if anyone's in Christ, he's a new... Okay, go. all things have become new. Go back to Ephesians. That you put on the new man who was, who was created according to God in true righteousness. Now, wait a minute. You just showed me in Ephesians, Paul said you have put him on. And now Paul is saying here in Galatians, he said, you have put him on. Now Paul is here telling us in Ephesians where to put him on. Well, we're going to talk about that. Because you can't... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Put on the new man, look at this, which was created according to God. That word according is a Greek word kata, which means according to the image of. Modeled on the image of. According to the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. This man on the inside of you, woman, you know, forget the gender issue, person on the inside of you, is created in God's own holiness and God's own righteousness. Ephesians 1 tells us that he knew us, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to good pleasure of his will, with praise of glory which he made to abound to us, and so on. Okay, so this new creation in you is as holy as God is, and that causes your mind to tilt until you spend some time renewing your mind. But how else can you get into heaven with a holy God if we're not as holy as he is? Because the part of you that's been made holy is the real person on the inside of you. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do anything that was holy. That's your works. That's right. You didn't. But you received his gift of holiness. 
Second Corinthians five twenty one says that says he who knew no sin, Christ, became sin, ours, so that we might become. Can you put it up there? I want to, if you can. I want Second Corinthians five twenty one. I want you to see this if you can. They can find that. I got confidence in them. He made him. That's God made him Christ, who knew no sin. Remember, he was in all ways tempted as we are, but he never sinned. To be sin for us, so that we might become, look at this, I want you to look at this, we might become not righteous. Because that's a relative term. I'm as righteous as you are, you're more righteous. No, that we might become the righteousness of God. We might become as righteous as God is. But there are two more words. In Him. It's not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. I, when I came to Christ, I left that old person that I was, and I became joined to Christ, so that now, whatever he is, I am, because I'm one with him. And whatever I am, this is the hard part, he is now, because we're one with him. And his righteousness and his holiness absorbs me. It's like taking, I've got a, a, a fountain pen in there, and I have this beautiful black um, uh, ink that's, that's you, is, you can't eradicate it. It's like going to a pristine swimming pool, Olympic size. That's his righteousness. And you take that eyedropper of that black, terrible ink, and you drop it in that pristine pool. What happens? It gets absorbed in his righteousness. But it's in him that we have that righteousness. It's in him that we have that righteousness. And to be in him, I have to leave me. The, the, the best example of that we have, and I think that's part of why God's given us this, is the covenant of marriage. And this is part of what the world doesn't understand today. It's a covenant. It's a blood covenant. Where, where, where God's design is that the two become one. We often use as a symbol of that in a marriage seminar, seminar, the unity candle. So you have a candle that's lit by one family, which represents the family that the groom came from. You have another candle that's lit by the bride's family, which represents the life that came from them, from the bride's family. And then they take those two candles and they put them together to put a brand new candle to create one flame that's come from those two sources, but it's now one flame, one life. That means when we were joined together 55 years ago, all that she had, all that she was, her assets and liabilities, now became my assets and liabilities. She didn't have any liabilities, but she had some great assets. I'm not talking about money, just personality. What she didn't know is what she was getting with me. (laughs) 
she thought she thought she had this handsome, full of light hair, Ivy League type of guy, and she didn't understand all the baggage that came with me. And after a period of time, she realized, and this is true of every marriage, you, 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 know, you don't know who you're marrying until you've been married, which is why it's so important to make that covenant commitment. Because there have been many times <laughs> when that baggage I brought into this and the way she was raised to respond to it <laughs> created conflict where what held us together was the commitment that we'd made because we were now one. And that's what God has done with us through Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be, to be sin for us so that we might become the right... So God, Christ took our sin and paid for it, not just so we could be forgiven, because if, if he hadn't paid for it, God could not legally give us his righteousness. So the sin had to be paid for, so the debt was gone, and now the next step was, that's not the fulfillment, the next step was to give us his righteousness in him. And now we can come into his presence. Now we can come into his presence in prayer, in worship. We can, you can do it in the shower, in the car. Why? Because Hebrew says the door's wide open, the veil's been torn. You have free and open, you have the same open access to the Father that Christ has because you come in him. The confidence you have to come before him, the confidence that our prayers are going to be heard and answered is the same confidence Jesus had because you're coming in him to say no to you he's got to say no to Jesus and Jesus said in John chapter 11 standing outside Lazarus tomb father I know you always hear me when I pray I know I have the answer because of the relationship we have and you have the same relationship with him because you're in Christ and he's in you so that's what happened to you when you're born again but you've got to learn how to put it on. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Colossians 3, verse 9. He's finished telling them some things to not do. And he says, don't lie to one another because it's not a good thing to do. Don't lie to one another because it's not moral. Don't lie to one another because you might be caught. No. Don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Next verse. And have put on the new man who is renewed. That actually means who is being renewed in knowledge. We'll talk about, that's referring to renewing your mind. Who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We'll explain that in a minute. So the new man, go back to verse 10. The new man who is in you we're being renewed in the knowledge of him according to the image of him who created him. And then he goes on to specific applications. Go ahead, verse 11. Where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, bar, bar, you know, they say, wherever you've come from, but Christ is all and in all. Why? Because we're in him, we're one with him, and he's one with us. Verse 12. Therefore, as the chosen elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Keep going. 
bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. So he's telling us to do these things, not just because they're a commandment, not just because they're good things to do, but we're to put on who we really are. That's who you are. And we're to put on who we really are. Next verse. But above all these things, if you want to know what else to do, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. These are things we are to put on. Romans 13. You better put the clock back on or I'll I'll keep going. (laughs) But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it. He's, He's writing this to believers. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it. Okay. And there are other things we could look at. So let's, let's take some time now. What does it mean to put on Christ? What does it mean to put on Christ? I, I, those words are so important because every day you live out what they mean. Because I know one thing about every one of you that's here. I don't know those of you that are watching, but every one of you today has put clothes on. And I'm grateful for that. (laughs) So it's the same concept. So we're going to talk about what do you do when you put your clothes on and how we can apply that to putting Christ on. All right. Clothing is a good example. We're going to have five points here. First of all, you can only put on clothing that you have. If you've always wanted a mink stole and you don't have one, you can't put one on unless you borrow somebody's or steal it. So you can only put on, this, that's, this is important, I want you, these are going to sound so simple, but they're profound when you talk about Christ. You can only put on clothing that you already have. So when he's telling us to put on Christ, that means you already have him. These verses don't, this is so important, because what, what we do when we read these verses, when we read these Gospels, under that old mind that thinks in terms of the law, we think Jesus is telling us, we've got to go get these qualities. I've got to learn to be more loving. I've got to learn to be more patient. I've got to learn to be more long so I've got to learn I've got to learn to have more kindness. I've got to learn I've got to learn I've got to go get these things. I got oh I need to try harder to be kind. I need to try harder to be forgiving. I know you've got to learn to put Christ on. Because because he doesn't tell us there to go find these things and get them just as you can't go get clothing and put it on that you don't already have. So when he tells us to put him on, when he tells us to put these things on, that means we already have them. See, Satan works hard to get us to strive to be better Christians. Because then we'll feel better about ourselves. It's looking at me again. Okay. We'll move along here. So the first thing is you can only put on something that you already possess. The second thing is, in order to put it on, you've got to know where it is. <laughs> Every once in a while, one of us will want to wear a piece of clothing. We can't remember where we put it. I won't mention names. 
but we can't, where do we put it? So I can't put something on that I can't find. I own it. It's in the house somewhere. But if I don't know where it is, if I haven't kept in touch with it, if I haven't kept aware of it, I can't go and put it on. So when we apply that over to putting Christ on, if you're not conscious of him in you, if you're not aware and have not renewed your mind to what we're talking about tonight, you will not know how to go get patience, love, long-suffering, kindness, joy, the fruit of the Spirit to put on Christ's personality. You won't know how to do that because you've not been in touch with it. You don't know where, where it is inside of you. So you go to find it somewhere else. You have to have familiarity with it. You have to know how to put it on. <laughs> One of my routines in the morning when I get up is to take this little seven-pound bundle of energy who spent a whole night in a crate, and she just can't wait to go out. I don't just mean go, go. I mean she run. She is just ready to be released and run. And often it's before the sun's come up and it may be cold or wet outside. So before I go to bed, I figure out what I'm going to wear to go outside with her in the morning. And when I've tried before to figure out what part of my clothing is front and back, what's inside and out in the dark, and it doesn't always work out well. So what I have to do is plan ahead of time so I'm familiar with the clothing. I'm familiar with the sweatshirt. Okay, the, the front of it's down and the back of it's up. So all I got to do is pick it up and put it over my head. And it's right side. It's not inside out. It's right side out. So my pants, I got to know where they are. I know where my socks are. Because if I'm up before Anita's, I don't want to wake her up. So I've got to know, I've got to know not only where they are, but I've got to know how to get in them. So you've got to not only know where he is in you, but you've got to know how to put these on. We're going to talk about that. So that's the second thing. You've got to know where the garment is and how to put it on. You've got to remember that you have it. You have to be familiar with it. In order to wear it, it must fit you. I have some pants that over the last year must have shrunk. Because I know they used to fit me. And I don't know what happened to these pants. They must have shrunk because it's certainly not possible that my girth could have included, increased to the point that these pants that used to be loose on me are now tight. So it must fit you. It must be styled for you and it must be sized for your body in order to fit you. I, <laughs> I bought a pair of jeans and I know what my size is, and I still can fit into that size, although some of it's easier than others. And I got them home, and they weren't very expensive, and I found out why when I got them home, because I think they were missized, because I wear a 32, and these had to be a 34 length, because they were bunching up on my shoes, and that doesn't normally happen. I looked at the, I looked at the back of it, where the tag is, and it said 32 length but it couldn't have been 32 length, because I measured again. So my point is, I don't like wearing those, because they're baggy on me. They don't look the way I like them to look on me. So these, have to, these attributes of Christ have to fit you, which means your mind has to be renewed so that your identity can meet up with those things. This is so important. This is why renewing the mind is so important. An old example I used to use, I'll, I'll use it here. 
I don't think people, men wear these anymore. But I used to, this was, we're talking now 30 years ago. I used to have a pair of white jeans. Anybody remember white jeans? Yeah. Sharp. White jeans. But not only did I have a pair of white jeans, I had twin boys who were about three. And they loved their daddy's leg. So when I get these jeans, they were washed, get them out of the washer, out of the dryer, and put them on back, I felt sharp. I mean, these are nice-looking jeans, and I wanted to wear them. But over time, I would sit on a bench or somewhere, and they'd start getting dirty, or I'd have little handprints down here somewhere. So when I first wore them, and they were nice and clean, I was very careful where I walked, where I went. I was careful who was touching me. I was very careful where I sat, because I was aware of the cleanliness of my jeans. But when they started getting dirty, and they lost their crease, and they had a couple of handprints on them, I wasn't so careful where I sat. I wasn't careful kind of whether I got dirt on them because I'm going to be able to get them cleaned up later on. And the same is true of the righteousness that Christ has put in you. When you're conscious of it, when you're conscious of your righteousness, his righteousness in you, you will act accordingly. This old expression, if you realize Christ, really realize Christ lives in you, it will change where you take him. and how you talk with him there, and how you act with him there. I used an example a week or so ago in Renewing the Mind about how you can control your mind, and I used the example of, and this happened to me a number of years ago, where there was a couple in the church, there was not this church, there was another church, and they were apparently in this heated discussion. And I called. The phone rings, and they're mad at each other, and I pick up the phone, and I said, hello, this is Pastor John. Oh, hello, Pastor John. And immediately they got control of themselves because even over the phone, I was now present with them. Imagine what would happen if you go through your day conscious that Christ is literally in you wherever you go, wherever you say, whatever you do. Jesus was conscious of this, and this is why he said, I only do what I see my Father do, and I only say what I hear my father say. So, putting on your clothes, you've got to have clothes that that fit you, they're appropriate for you, and the same is true when you realize that that Christ that is in you has been fitted just for you. All right. Let's go to number four. In order to put on the clothes you put on today, you had to choose them. You chose to put those clothes on. And again, I'm grateful that you did. And sometimes, you know, and maybe you ladies struggle with this a little more than men, although men can do this too. What am I going to wear? What am I going to wear to church on Sunday? What am I going to wear to work? What am I going to wear? And you look at a a closet that has clothes in it, and you get that you... Now, there's some people that are so spiritual, they stand in front of the closet, and they pray in tongues for the Holy Spirit to tell them what to wear that day. Now, I'm not saying if he had some particular reason to tell you to wear something because he was going to make some connection, that he wouldn't do that. But I don't doubt that he does that every day. That's just my view. You can have your own view. But the point is you choose. You choose. God gave you a free will. So you choose not only to put them on, but you choose what you're going to put on. 
Because notice some of these verses tell us to choose to put what we are choose to put on. But that's the law side. The grace side is it's already in you. You already have it. It's up to you to choose to put on. And the fifth point is about putting your garments on is the garment that you choose to wear reflects something about you. I see some ministers, especially on TV, that are somewhere near my age that are, that are dressing as if they're 20-year-olds. And, and, and <laughs> I'm not 20 years old, all right? And I'm not going to dress with, you know, skinny jeans. They wouldn't look that good on me anyway. I'm not going to dress like I'm 20 years old because I'm not. I'm going to dress like something that's appropriate for my age. I'm not going to, I don't wear a tie in church very often anymore because I understand that and I'm comfortable with that. But I don't come in and cut off jeans and, you know, I, I, I dress appropriate for who I am. And so what, the, what you wear and how you wear it says something to those around you about who you are. And what you put on spiritually doesn't just reflect on you. It reflects on the one that you're one with. Just as if I can do things that reflect well or poorly on my wife because we're one. So, how do you do this? What does it mean to put Christ on? Well, it means to act like him. We've learned you already possess these qualities. And since he lives in us through the Holy Spirit, we don't have to go and get them or pay for them. We have to first of all believe by faith that those qualities are in us because they're his qualities. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's his fruit. And his purpose is to bear Christ's fruit in us. So we don't have to go and pay for them. But we need to know that these qualities that are in you and how to find them. And you need to be familiar with them. And it's a choice that you make every day in every situation. I had a situation yesterday where, where I had a meeting with someone that, that could have become contentious. It was someone that has... has well, I don't want to go into any detail. It was someone where, where I had strong feelings about them and some things that have happened as a result of them. And they may have had them with me. And, and I, and, but I set myself before I went in that meeting. The purpose of that meeting was to make sure that everything was clear between us, whether we agree on each other or not, to make sure the relationship was clear. Because Christ does say, how can you come and worship me if you have a brother that has something against you? In other words, our relationship with each other is more important to him than our worshiping him. Because he tells us to go get that straight before we come in and worship. And so that's what I was doing. I want to make sure my heart was right. So I set myself before I went into this meeting. And and I, I said, Lord, and I went exactly through this. I said, you live in me. And this person although there may be issues that we could have between us, this person is also your child as much as I am. And you love them as much as you love me. 
So I want to make sure that I represent you in this conversation that I have with them. I want to represent you. And it went very well. It was a very healing time. I had another situation years ago where I was getting a sandwich somewhere, and this, this person who used to go here years ago um, saw me and came right up to me and got mad at me and blamed me that I was responsible for his divorce. And my mind's fast. My mind remembers every meeting I had with that wife and every effort I made to try to help that marriage back together again. And I remember that whole situation. And I was ready to come back and fire back at him all of my answers. But I let, I made a choice to not put John on. And I made a choice to put Christ on. So I asked myself, what would you say here, Lord? What's your heart towards this person? And when the moment I did that, I began to realize this person was hurt and angry, and I was the focal point of it. And so I stood there, and I took his anger, and I took all that was well, had welled up in his heart and frustration. I just stood there and took it and loved him. And when it was all done, and I know I didn't do anything wrong, but I, that's the, whether I did something right or wrong is not the issue. That's about me. It's what does Christ want to do here in this situation? So I let him, but isn't that what Jesus did? He took the anger of those Roman soldiers, of the, of the Jewish authorities. He bore that for us. He bore God's wrath for my sin and your own self so we don't have to bear it and we can be free of it. And we're called to do that for one another. And so when he kind of finished and calmed down, I just looked at him as lovingly as I could. I said his name and I said, I'm truly sorry. If in any way I let you down and I failed you, would you please forgive me? And it healed that situation right away. That was, but that was a choice I had to make. But I'll tell you this much. The more you make the choice, the easier it is to make it. Because a lot of times those opportunities come up and we don't even realize it's an opportunity. And before we realize, me has opened my mouth and shot it off or done something and reacted. So the more you learn to put him on Remember, you don't have to go get him. He's in you. If these are in you, you make the choice, I'm going to put on love. Remember, that's the perfect bond of peace. I'm going to put on understanding. The Bible says to, to mourn with those that mourn. If this person's hurting, I'm going to mourn with them. Even if the anger's towards me, I want to help heal that. That's a choice we make. And the more you do that, the more you become aware of the opportunities and you also become aware of the times you didn't choose to put him on. Whenever I choose, whatever I choose, will either reflect Christ to others or myself. So how do we do this? Romans 12, 2. We've been learning this on Sundays. Do not be conformed to this world. That's what Satan's trying to do but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I've taught you that that word transformed in the Greek literally means to take who you really are in the inside and bring it to the outside. That's putting Christ, that's who you are, putting 
him on, putting on who you really are on the outside, the way you talk, the way your demeanor, the way you respond to situations. But it's done by the renewing of your mind, renewing of your mind to what God's done in you, who he's put in you, renewing of your mind to I have the, op- I have the, the right and the respons- responsibility to make the choice to put him on in those situations. It means looking, and how do we do this? It's looking at Christ. Let's go to Second uh, Corinthians 3. Oh, wow. Now, what he's talked about here is he's talked about before this that, that unbelievers are, are blind to spiritual realities. Uh, I saw this so true when I was a lawyer in my last law firm because I worked with a number of, of Jewish lawyers, and they were wonderful men and women. But one of them was a very devout Jew, and he belonged to a very devout synagogue. They're not all like that. So he invited me to a Torah meeting. And what it was was this, the rabbi would meet with different members of his, of his um, synagogue, and, and, and he would have lunch with them, and they'd discuss the Torah. And they're discussing, I don't remember which part of the Old Testament, and they're going on there, I wonder what this means, I wonder what this means. And I want to say, it's obvious, it's talking about Christ. But they couldn't see that because there was a veil over their eyes. And, and the writer says that that veil, Paul says, that veil is taken away when you come to Christ. But nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So now that means we can see clearly. Next verse. Now the Lord is the Spirit. This is a little complicated here. The Lord is the Spirit. So it's for the Spirit of God in you is the Lord that you're going to put on. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And he's going to tell us how to do this. Verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, which means now because Christ is in you, you can see spiritually, you can see him. You can, not the visions, but you can see these characteristics. You can see truth. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transferred transformed, that's the same word that's in Romans 12 too, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is he saying there? He's saying we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, one of the articles they had was a bowl called the laver. And this, was, this represented the, the, the word. And, and it was filled with water. And before the priest could go into the inner sanctuary, they, they had been, they'd been sacrificing animals. They're walking on dirt. And they were dirty. They had blood. They had animal fat all over them. And before they could go into the holy place, they had to wash their hands. And there was a rim around. And they had to wash their feet. That means cleansing them from their activity, even if, although it was worshiping him. And they did this by looking into this bowl of water. But the bottom of this bowl was a mirror. So when they looked in the water, they were looking at their image reflecting back to them through the water. All right? Let's go to James chapter 1. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And here's an example of it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, but not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Keep going and observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. James is saying that the word of God is a mirror. 
But the mirror you have in your bathroom reflects back to you what you put in front of it, unfortunately. I stand in front of that and I still look my age. I don't look like I do in those old pictures. It reflects back to you. What you see is what you get. But when you look into the mirror of God's word, what's reflected back to you is the image of who you are on the inside. And the longer you look at that mirror of who you are on the inside, it begins to transform you into who you really are on the inside. You can stare that mirror in your bathroom all you want, and you won't change that image. But you stare into the mirror of God's Word and the glory of God in God's Word, and it will transform you in to the realization, this is the renewing of your mind, of who you really are inside. How do you think Jesus found out He was the Son of God? Through the Scriptures. He would read the scriptures. He would read the prophecies, the messianic prophecies. And somewhere inside of him, that spirit would say, that's you. He would begin to recognize himself in those scriptures. In 1 John, he says that when he comes back, we're going to see him as he is. And we're going to recognize that we're just like him. That's powerful. 1 Corinthians 13 says, We see now dimly, as in a mirror, a foggy mirror. But then we're going to see face to face. And we're going to realize, when we look at him, we look at us, we look at him, and we look, Whoa! Whoa! I look just like you on the inside. So the more you renew your mind to that, the more you will begin to act. Just think about it. The, the more you think about something, the more it becomes part of you. That's what worry does. Now, what Satan's device is, is to get you to think about yourself. Well, I can't ever do this. I'm a failure. I've never done anything right. Look at the mistakes that I've made. Or the other way around. Hey, I'm the next best thing that the world's ever needed here. Wow, I'm something special. Both of those are looking at me. And the answer, the way you put Christ on, the way you learn to put Christ on is by gazing at him. Looking unto Jesus. He talks about putting aside the weights and the sins that so easily beset us. How do we do that? By looking unto Jesus. See, most of us try to put aside those sins by looking at the sins and trying harder to put them aside. And that's a trap. Because one of the things you'll learn in renewing the mind as we go further is the more you think about something, the bigger it gets in your mind. So the more you think about what you're doing wrong and what you've got to do, if you've ever died, you know what that's like. Oh, getting so heavy, my goodness. The more you think about that, the more you have no incentive to do anything about it. So Satan's trick is to get you to focus on you and to try harder. The Word of God teaches us to focus on Jesus and what he's done. And by faith, receive that, and then, as James says, begin to apply that in your life. As we, James 1 says, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, because if you're here, if you, if you observe and go away and immediately forget what kind of person you are, he says you deceive yourself. Because when you look in the mirror, you see that's who I am, but then you don't begin to act on it. That begin, image begins to fade, and the image of that old man begins to come back up in your memory. St. Augustine, one of the great saints of the 4th century, has a quote. I'm not going to read the quote to you, but basically it says this. The physical food we eat gets converted into me. 
So the dinner I had is somewhere in here right now. Yesterday's hamburger's over here. <laughs> the food you eat becomes converted into you and becomes part of you. But when you eat the Word, when you consume the Word, it converts you into who He is. And didn't Jesus say, I am the bread of life. He who eats me. And this is what they got so upset about. He went, eat me means relationship with me. Absorb me. Think about me. So what do we do? How do we put Christ on? We put him on by making sure we spend time every day. Whatever is the best time. And these are things we know. We know, but they're not just religious things to do. They're not just some obligation. This is what, this is what enhances this process in you. We're all going you know, to get to heaven, and you know, it's not going to stop. We have this image, we get to heaven, it's like, whoo, I don't have to do that anymore. Whoa, I made it. Some of us, whoa, I made it. It's like, you know, whoo, my coattails are still smoking there, but I made it. And they, whoa, I made it. I'm going to sit on clouds of ease and, ah, and it's just converted into something perfect. No, the process goes on in heaven. You're going to continue to grow. You're going to continue to learn. But I want to show up not having wasted. And look at that. It's not just me. Think of the lives that you impact without knowing it. One of my prayers has been out of John 15 about the vine and the branches. Lord, I want to abide in you to the point. This is a great time of year to think about this because the, the, the blossoms are coming out. And some places you can begin to smell, smell the fragrance that's coming out of, of, of the, some, of these, some of the some of these bushes don't have a fragrance, but some of them do. And there's a time when the honeysuckle's coming out. We have some back here. And you smell it. You can smell it. I mean, we had the lilies in here back in Easter. You smell it. And it draws you to certain things. And I'm saying, Lord, I want to abide in you to the point where your character, your love, your heart begins to emanate from me and it's the fragrance of Christ begins to come out of my life in ways I'm not even conscious of and draw others so that they can begin to partake of the fruit that you bear through me comes by putting Christ on. God has placed us in a dark world. God has placed us in a world that's turning upside down and gone crazy. But you've heard me say this over and over God, God has put us here, you and me, this church and other churches here for such a time as this. Because he wants to bring that love of Christ. He wants to bring the good news of the gospel, the power of the gospel. In this time of darkness is when the light shines the brightest. But that light, in fact, if you go on, Paul talks about the glory of this light shining out of us. And he makes the contrast. It's just before, he makes the contrast. Moses, in God's presence, came down off the mountain, and people were falling down, so he had to put a cover over himself so that people could stand in his presence. But what happened is when it began to fade away, because it didn't come out of him, it came as a reflection from God's presence. That when he, he, he kept the veil over because so that people wouldn't see that it was fading away. But Paul goes on to say the glory that was on him 
is in you. It's in you. It's the same light that God created the earth, the worlds by. That light of the gospel, that light of Christ's love, the light of the power of his delivering power and redeeming power to save people's lives, redeem their lives, that's in you and me. And the church sits asleep, worried about the stock market and worried about what's going on around the world. And yes, we should be concerned about some of those things and worried about our lives and not realizing who it is that lives in me and lives in you. Let's pray. Father, Father, help us. Help us. Help us to see not just in church, but help us to see tomorrow morning. Open the eyes of our understanding that we would see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ. And that's not just heaven. Your calling for our life that's in Christ is here and now in this sick, perverted, dark world. Open the eyes of our understanding and show us by your spirit who it is that's living in us because all of us are facing situations that need his love and his grace and his peace and his transforming power that you have placed in your church and in us Holy Spirit move on us awaken us from our slumber help us to focus Help us to focus on Christ, not just in heaven, but Christ who is in us, the hope of glory. Not just the future, but the glory of Christ that's in his church now. That it may begin to shine forth from this place and from our lives and from our homes. Yes, Father, shine forth from homes where there's strife and discord and that light may begin to shine in those homes and bring healing and wholeness and health and hope and begin to shine out of those homes to turn lives around from darkness to light. It can only happen. It can only happen as we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, take our eyes off of ourselves and off of the world around us and get so caught up in Jesus, so in love with Jesus, so full of love for Jesus who has given everything for us that we may indeed be filled with his spirit. Father, I pray as we close that you would strengthen us according to your might by your spirit and our inner man that Christ might dwell, be able to live his life in us and through us by faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we might come to know together with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know by experience the love of Christ that passes understanding so that we together may be filled up with all of your fullness. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, be glory in your church for all generations. Amen.